If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 21 together. And if, while we're turning in our Bibles, you do need a Bible, just hold your hand up. There's some guys in the aisles that do have a copy of the Scripture. You can get a copy from them so you can read along with us as we study God's Word this morning. We've been making our way verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. This morning we pick up where we left off last week in the 21st chapter. So we are going to pick back up there in verse 5 and we'll go down through verse 11 together this morning. And if you're turned there, shall we stand together in respect for the Scripture as we read our text for this morning. Luke 21 beginning in verse 5. It says, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he, that's Jesus, said, These things which you see, the days will come when not one stone shall be left upon another, that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be, when will these things be? Excuse me, what will... What sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines, and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Father, we do just ask for your help and your assistance as we open the Word of God this morning, that your Holy Spirit would just prepare each and every one of us to be receptive and attentive to what the voice of God through the Word of God would want to say to us this morning. Lord, you know what that means for each one of us in this room. And Lord, we ask that our hearts would be receptive and that you would allow us to hear everything it is that you would want to say to us. So Lord, bless your Word and speak to our hearts by your Spirit's ministry, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I have found that oftentimes the concerns and interests of Jesus are typically much different than natural men. He seems to view things, unlike us, not through a lens of the temporal, not through the lens of what's uh, temporally important or temporally comfortable, but Jesus all the time seems to be weighing and evaluating everything in light of its eternal impact in light of what's spiritually important. And I think we really start to see that even in this text as we now move into this teaching that we'll see over the next few weeks together of Jesus sharing some things regarding end times events and how really what mattered to Jesus most, his greatest concerns and interests, are much different than the interests of natural man because he doesn't just take into consideration the natural importance of comforts and those things, but what eternal impacts things hold. Now, what we're going to begin to look at as we move through Luke chapter 21 together is often what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, This Olivet Discourse is apart from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, apart from that teaching of Jesus, this teaching, the Olivet Discourse, 
really is the second longest teaching that we have recorded of Jesus in the Gospels. We find this exact same teaching here in Luke 21, also recorded in Matthew chapter 24, as well as in Mark chapter 13. And in Matthew chapter 4, uh, 24, excuse me, and Mark chapter 13, we get some additional insights. And I would just say, even as we're moving into this, those would be two other important chapters, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, that you familiarize yourself with, exact same teaching, because in some of those passages, we get some of, from the writers there, some additional insights and details, and we'll be making reference to them as we go through Luke 21 to sort of fill in some extra details that will help. Now remember, where Jesus is at at this point in the last few days of his earthly life is he's in the temple area. We saw that last time together. Jesus showing how his value system and his estimation of things, again, is much different than man's. Remember, we saw him there in the beginning of the chapter, and he was sitting in the temple area near the treasury, and it says he was watching how people were putting in their offerings for God in the temple area. And many who were rich came in, this account and the other Gospels tell us, and the rich were putting in much. They were putting in great donations. And again, much of the money in that day was in coins, so it would take quite a bit longer to put in larger donations and these uh, 13 trumpet-shaped depositories that were there to receive offerings for God. So as people would watch the rich and they'd see big donations being made, certainly that was impressive. Wow, look at the donation that that wealthy man is, is making here uh, as an offering for God, and it impressed people. But remember, Jesus then saw, it said, a poor widow. And she came into the area where the treasury was, and she put in, it says, just two mites. The idea is just her last few cents that she had to live on. And she gave this offering out of her complete poverty to God. It was, it was completely, in its significance monetarily, nothing in comparison to what others were giving. However, remember, that gift, that offering to the Lord, impressed Jesus the most. It wasn't the big amount that impressed Jesus. It was the attitude of the heart seen in the giving that really impressed Jesus. And that really mattered to him the most. And remember, he pointed that widow's offering out to his disciples, wanting them to see the value of her heart towards God. Because that's what God puts value on, the heart. And Jesus saw the value of that heart towards God. And remember, Jesus is always way more interested in spiritual health than he is financial wealth. And it seems, again, this is where, almost in that same thought, we move as we now go into this Olivet Discourse and the conversation continues. Look with me in verse 5. It says, Then as some spoke of the temple, again, how it was adorned, beautified, with beautiful stones and donations, Jesus said to them, These things which you see, he said, The days will come when not one stone shall be left upon another, that shall not be thrown down. So many there in the temple that day, and we're told from the other accounts, this actually comes from the disciples, and then others chime in and, and get involved in the conversation. Many people were greatly impressed with this magnificent structure of the temple of God that was there in Jerusalem. However, Jesus shows that what they are focused on has no lasting value whatsoever. Again, Matthew's account, as well as Mark's, 
tell us that Jesus with the crowds is now exiting the temple area. So he's walking through the temple precincts in a sense. And people began to seek to point out to his attention how impressed they were with this gorgeous temple and how it was adorned with such beautiful stones and decorations and donations. And they're pointing out to Jesus the magnificence of this structure. That's what Luke tells us here, that, that they're pointing out to Jesus, it says, how the temple was adorned with such beautiful stones and, and great donations. that were in, And the idea is they want to show Jesus, and this is the disciples here, they want to show Jesus how, Lord, have you really noticed how impressive this temple is? And they want him to see it. It's almost as if they want to make sure that he recognizes, wow, do you see this thing? And they're, they're drawn to it. And like many people, naturally, they were enamored and they were wowed by the magnificent structure and its appearance that it had in that day. And indeed, let me just say, it was a remarkable structure. If you know anything about history or you've studied the temple in that period, uh, this is often what is referred as Herod's Temple in that day, the temple that Jesus was in at that point. The reason it's called Herod's Temple is because Herod, who was a ruler in that day, performed a major renovation, a major upgrade and expansion to this project of the Jewish temple. As a ruler, Herod was... He was an incredible master builder. This guy was an incredible architect. And everything that he did, everything he made, everything he built, it was big, it was large, it was over the top. Primarily because the guy was an egomaniac. And he wanted his name and his fame published everywhere. That was the primary motivator of why he did things the way that he did. However, that being said, everything Herod built was big and beautiful and impressive. And he wanted it to outlive him as long as possible. He wanted it to outshine even the great pyramids so that his name would be remembered. And this temple for the Jews that Herod became involved in and did a major renovation on and a major upgrade to, this was to be his masterpiece. It was to be his absolute masterpiece. And indeed, it was incredible and impressive. It literally lasted a few decades, the construction process and the renovation that Herod did on the temple. Some of its massive foundation stones, again, made of that beautiful like white limestone, some of its foundation stones were 40 foot long, 20 foot wide, and 12 foot high. To this day still... Archaeologists and people who recognize these things, it's still a mystery how they got these stones in place the way that they did. And on top of this big, impressive, gorgeous structure, the whole thing was then overlaid with gold, plates of gold. In fact, Josephus, one historian in that day, writes this. Listen to his writings. Josephus says, The outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that would surprise either men's mind or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the rising of the first sun, it reflected back a fiery splendor and made those who looked upon it to turn their eyes away just as if they had done at the sun's very own rays. But the temple appeared to strangers when at a distance like a mountain covered with snow for parts of it were covered in gold and the other were exceedingly pure white. 
This is what is meant when the Bible tells us here that they were pointing out to Jesus and showing him the temple's splendor, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and great donations of great wealth. It was a magnificent facility. It was a remarkable structure. It really, really was. And as a result, the disciples, like many others, they were greatly impressed by it. It was attractive. It was appealing. It was something that really sparkled in the eyes of a man. And, and as a result, not only did they find themselves so enamored by its beauty and its magnificence and its brilliance as a structure, but it also caused them to realize that it seemed so stable, so secure, so immovable. Remember, Jesus had said not too long ago regarding Jerusalem that its house would be left to them desolate. And they're thinking... What? How could this temple, look at this thing, is so powerful, so big, so stable, so secure in the way that it's been built. How? And Jesus shows them here what seems so secure and stable really, he says, verse 6, it really has no lasting value. Was it impressive, temporally, physically, attractively? Absolutely, but Jesus wants them to see in verse 6, but it has no lasting value. It's a building. Look what he says in verse 6. Jesus says, These things which you see, and the idea that you see with your eyes popping out of your head that you're so amazed and attracted to, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus indicates this magnificent building they're so impressed with was going to be overthrown and destroyed. In fact, quite literally, he describes and predicts that it would be totally leveled. That it would actually be dismantled stone by stone to where there wasn't even one stone left in place at a certain point in time. And historically, again, that is exactly what happened in 70 AD. When Titus Vespasian and the Roman invasion came into Jerusalem and laid siege to the city for five months, the end result of that was exactly what Jesus said. Here's what's interesting. Titus, the ruler who came in and laid siege to the city, on top of that, had given a specific command to his soldiers not to touch the temple. And even though they were laying siege and they would conquer and overcome the city, Titus gave direct orders of the military commander, whatever you do, leave the temple intact. There was such reverence for this temple. There was such respect for it that Titus gave specific command, listen, preserve that temple, do not touch it, do not harm it. And he was doing everything in his power with the Roman authorities backing that that temple would not be touched. Interestingly enough, the word of Jesus, ultimately, that was predicted is what ended up prevailing, though they weren't to harm the temple. Because what happened is one soldier, in a rage or a drunkenness, we're not certain, tossed in just one torch into the temple area. And some of the curtains quickly caught fire. And internally, all the wood within the temple structure caused that temple to go ablaze. And it was like a big wood-burning oven inside this stone structure. It became so hot, the temple structure from this great fire, that all of the gold on the stones began to melt and run down the stones and in between the cracks. And Roman soldiers, part of their payment or salary was whatever spoils they could get from the area they conquered. 
So because of that, in their greediness, even after the fire and everything happened, when it all went out, in their greediness, because so much gold had gone down and in between the cracks of these stones, these soldiers literally began to knock over and dismantle one by one all these stones to get at the gold for themselves to further enrich themselves and in essence doing what? Fulfilling exactly the words of Jesus Christ 40 years earlier seen here in verse 6 that the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Listen, whatever Jesus says, you can bank on it. And he can use the wickedness of men to accomplish his plans. It's not as if Jesus necessarily caused that to happen. Jesus just knows everything that's going to happen. And all the world activities, God superintends over everything. And the wrath and evil and ungodliness and the godliness and righteousness, all those things God superintends over. He knows the beginning from the end because he is the beginning and he is the end. And everything comes to pass exactly, exactly according to what Jesus says. And listen, you've got to remember that as you read your Bible. You got to remember that. You hold in your hand the only reliable thing on this planet. It is the only reliable thing because it is the one thing that has 100% guarantee in its accuracy. And interesting, what seems so secure, so stable, so permanent, Jesus says in verse 6, listen boys, I know you're so impressed. This seems so secure to you, but he says, don't be misled. Because very soon Jesus said, it is all going to fall apart. I know you're, it's impossible. It's all going to fall apart. It is all going to just fall apart. Not one stone will be left. And what was true of that temple, that ancient temple, is true of our current world. All the systems of this world, all the nations, all the structures, everything that seems so secure, it will all soon come to an end. That's why 1 John chapter 2 tells us, do not love the world or the things of the world for the world is passing away. It's passing away. You know, also by way of application, interesting that people do tend, like the disciples, kind of should help us to see that we're all people of like passions. The disciples, those followers of Jesus, they were all struck and impressed with the beautiful structure. And many times people are. We're impressed to this day still with beautiful structures and attractive facilities. You have to take notice though, it appears that Jesus, however, was not. What they were so attracted by and interested in, it really didn't impress Jesus an ounce. I guess when you come from heaven, nothing on earth probably really impresses you too much. But what they were so enamored by in the facility of the temple, it it really didn't impress Jesus at all. He was more concerned with the building of God's kingdom. He was more concerned about investing constructively in people's lives, in the things that mattered eternally. See, unlike souls of people, unlike souls of people, buildings and facilities and such things, they have no lasting value. They have no lasting value. And because of that, you know, let us all be careful of putting a higher priority on things like buildings than they really deserve. A higher priority. In our view of facilities for worship today, we have to use things like wisdom and moderation, recognizing these kind of things. Look, nothing wrong. Please understand me. There's nothing wrong with having a nice 
and functional facility for God's people to meet, for God's purposes, for worship and ministry. But remember, a building just houses the spiritual, invisible work of God's Spirit. That's all it does. A building, a facility, it's just a tool that we utilize for a season. That's all it really is. And because of that, we have to keep that in consideration. And I think Jesus is almost trying to point out that perspective as well to the disciples who are about to be the ones who will be used to give birth to the early church so that when they go forward, they'll have a right perspective to keep these things in balance. They're so amazed. Jesus says, look, that has no lasting value. You're amazed about the wrong thing. And Jesus here just sets these things in, in good balance for them in this very passage. Well, as they hear Jesus predict the temple's downfall, it starts their mind firing on all cylinders and questions start running through their minds. Verse 7, it says, So they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So we see Jesus' statements start to prompt now a series of questions from the disciples. Again, if I can go back to what I said at the beginning, all three gospel accounts give us a sampling of the questions that they were asking Jesus at this point after he makes the statement about the temple. Luke tells us here in verse 7 that they asked Jesus, when will these things be in relation to the temple's destruction? What sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Matthew 24, important, records for us another question that they asked simultaneously at the exact same time in this onslaught of questions. Matthew 24 says they also asked Jesus at this point this, Master, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That that was also asked of Jesus. They wanted to understand more about the upcoming destruction of the temple, but they also wanted to know what would as well be the signs and indicators of the end of the age and the coming of Messiah the return of the Lord. Again, they did not fully understand at that point in time historically, they did not fully understand how all these th things would play out. In many ways, uh, they didn't realize there would be a gap of time between certain historical events. They just thought it would all culminate together. The temple would be destroyed and he'd set up the kingdom. And, and in their minds, they didn't quite grasp the concepts that with greater light and fast-forwarding into history, we now see and understand. That the temple would be destroyed within a few decades historically, but yet then there would be a long gap of time. A long age in which is called the age of the church. Jesus is going to call it later in Luke 21, uh, the, the times of the Gentiles. And that this would span through generations and generations before the end days and the return and coming of Jesus Christ. So uh, as we look at Luke 21... I bring that up because we have to remember this as we're looking at Luke's account of this Olivet Discourse that they have addressed and asked Jesus multiple questions. The three accounts show us the different questions that they're asking at this time. And as we look at Luke's account, we need to remember, yes, they're asking when will the temple be destroyed, but they're also asking at the same time what will be the signs of Jesus coming and return in the end of the age. And it seems that Jesus, from all three accounts, addresses that question first. 
that the first thing that he addresses is the answer to their question of the signs of his coming and the end of the age. That's what we see in verse 8 down through 11. And then we'll see Jesus then comes back in verse 12 through 24 and talks then specifically about what will precede the destruction of the temple historically. So very important to realize that. This morning for this teaching, in context, Jesus is addressing this question. What will the signs of his coming and the end of the age be like? And in verses 8 through 11, that's what he's zeroing in on first before he starts to talk about the destruction of the temple, which will begin in verse 12. So in verse 8 to 11, he predicts some activities. Notice he talks about different events that will be transpiring. He mentions the presence of false messiahs and pseudo-saviors. He mentions things here like worldwide warfare, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, fearful sights out of heaven. And Jesus begins to mention certain things. Again, Matthew 24 and Mark 13 at this point give us a very, very critical detail as well. In fact, you should probably, if anything else, write in your Bible here or in your notes, Matthew chapter 24, verse 8. Matthew 24, verse 8, because there Jesus says this. Let me read you the words of Jesus. Jesus says, all these things, earthquakes, pestilences, famines, pseudo-saviors, you know, fearful, all these things, wars and rumors of all these things, Jesus says, are the beginnings of sorrows. The word sorrows there that he uses is a word to refer to birth pangs, or we might say today, labor pains. Labor pains. Interesting detail. Jesus lists various signs that will be happening, and then he says, in relation to them, all these things, in relation to them, he says, all these things are the beginning of labor pains that will ultimately give birth to the end of the ages and the coming of Jesus Christ and the Son of Man's return to the earth. What is Jesus indicating by the fact that these things are labor pains? Well, again, I have been a direct observant, and I stress the word observant, not participant, because I don't want to get in trouble later on. I've been a direct observant of the labor process three times. Strictly an observant. And as I've watched the labor process and delivery process happen three times, two things are always clear characteristics of labor pains that result in a birth or a delivery. That is, number one, those labor pains have an increase in frequency. That is, those labor pains begin to become more and more quickly. The time span between the labor pains gets shorter and shorter and shorter, and they come quicker and quicker and quicker. And the time interval gets shorter and shorter, and they happen more and more frequently as you get closer to the delivery. Secondly, labor pains also increase not only in frequency, but they also increase in intensity. And again, by observation, I've seen that very clearly. The closer that you get, the pains get more intense and more severe and stronger with each progressive labor pain moving towards the birth process. Now apply that understanding to what Jesus is saying now regarding the end of the age and these signs of his coming. 
Jesus says here, we will see these things like labor pains, which will be the process of giving birth to the dawning of a new day at the end of the ages, which will culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ back to our earth. The signs, listen, the signs in and of themselves are not necessarily the indicators. But it is the, the, the because listen, there's always been false messiahs. There's always been earthquakes, right? There have always been wars throughout human history. But Jesus says, when you see these things like labor pains increasing in their frequency and increasing in their intensity, that the same things that have always existed, as they begin to come with greater frequency, more quickly, more often, and as they begin to come with greater severity upon the earth, with greater intensity, then Jesus says that is an indicator that spiritual labor is happening and the time is running very, very short. Again, just like the natural birth process, when labor happens and the onset of labor begins, nothing is going to stop that. Nothing's going to stop it. It's coming, and the only thing you can do is get ready. Because it is coming. And the indication of the labor pain shows that it's going to happen at any given hour very soon. And so there is then an urgency with the labor pains. There's an urgency that should not be ignored. Because it's coming. And the labor pains indicate that it's coming quickly. Now we find in this section the first mention Jesus gives of something of one of the labor pains to look for in verse 8 is he says, Take heed that you be not deceived. <clears throat> Again, the first of the labor pains to be watching for. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time has drawn near. Therefore, he says, do not go after them. So first labor pain, Jesus says, to look for increasing in frequency, increasing intensity is the proliferation of false messiahs, of self-proclaimed pseudo-savers. Jesus says, many, many will come in my name saying, I am the Savior. The time has drawn near. And they will say things to make people feel a sense of urgency, to make people feel a sense of fear, to put them under compulsion at a critical hour. You know, the world is ending at such and such a date and we got to all get ready because such and such a date is soon going to come to pass and, and they put people under compulsion and fear and put forth some sort of prophetic word and the whole purpose is just to accrue a personal folly. Because if you ever look at those things, you see there's a direct connection where they give this prophecy of some critical hour to make everybody fearful and all worked up and it's always in connection, too, with the conclusion of, but follow me, because I know some special rescue plan. And, 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 and I alone, if you give me your allegiance, I have a unique plan of escape. We go to such and such a place, or we do these things, and, and if you give me your allegiance, I will bring to you the way of escape on this, this judgment that's coming upon the earth on this particular date and so forth. And Jesus' simple instruction is what? Do not go after them. Don't go after them. He says as well here, very simply, take heed, be careful that you be not deceived. Listen, can I say this morning, be careful because one of Satan's strongest and most successful tactics is spiritual imitation. Is to imitate the things of God and make it look as much like what is genuine and real and sincere as possible 
with just enough so that he can bait and hook and lead people on a pathway to eternal destruction. Listen, when people counterfeit money, what do they do? They try and make it as close as possible to the real thing. They don't just, you know, counterfeit money and, and, and use like purple dollar bills with a picture of Hillary Clinton on it or something. I don't, you know what I mean? You, just, you, don't, you don't do that. You make money look as much like the genuine as possible. Why? So that you can deceive people. Same is true spiritually. So Jesus says, be careful of these things. Listen, these false pseudo-saviors, self-promoting messiahs, their intention, as I said, is just to, to prey upon unstable souls in a hopeless world in the days in which we live in. And we see this over recent history, but it's always the same process connected to fear and compulsion, but yet follow me, I'll help you to the way of escape, I'll provide a plan. And Jesus says, be careful, don't be deceived. Instead, he says, instead, he tells you and I who know the Bible and see it, let that, when you see it, don't be deceived by it, let that be to you a direct indication that the end is coming and the true Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is about to come. Let that be the indication for us. It tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen, when something is spiritual, or even today claimed as Christian, can I encourage you to take the word of God as your standard test the spirits? to see if it's of God. Make sure it's truly of God. There are unclean spirits. Paul told Timothy in the last days there'd be doctrines of demons. The demons can inspire bizarre doctrines to mislead people. Very spiritual, but extremely deceptive and, and dangerous. Test the spirits, the Bible says. Be careful. Be a good steward. Instead, Titus 2.13 tells us what we should be looking for. Titus 2.13 says we should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we should be looking for. Not some false Messiah, some pseudo-Savior, but looking for the true Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus then mentions verse 9, But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things, he says, notice, must come to pass first. But the end will not come immediately. And he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So another sign, again, as a labor pain that Jesus mentions to be looking for is an escalation of worldwide warfare on an international scale. Our world is destabilizing and deteriorating more and more. Military conflicts, national attacks, terroristic threats keep coming one after another. Jesus speaks here of continual wars and military threats among nations. Interesting, he also says even kingdoms of people. I don't know. Could that be an allusion perhaps to the fact of those who are people groups with strong ideological and religious beliefs? That because of that, hate and despise other people. And their little kingdom wants to destroy another kingdom, in a sense, with antagonism. Jesus says there will be a greater absence of peace among the nations. Military attacks, constant threats of warfare, 
These kind of things, he says, will be increasing and increasing and there will be shorter gaps of time in between those different episodes. Each crisis will also get more intense and more severe and strong as the one before it. Now, does that not sound quite familiar to even our recent history? I mean, just watch news and media as it unfolds. As they're addressing one attack or one battle, it seems the next moment they're struggling to keep up with the next threat that's coming out or the next terroristic attack or who's got the bomb now and who's the bomb intended for. It seems like the media can't even keep up anymore. They're covering one and then before you know it, the next day they're having the pool coverage from that because some next thing is happening. You know, just alone, yesterday's headlines, listen to two headlines from yesterday. First one, North Korea warns U.S. forces to expect destruction ahead of American war drills with South Korea. Right underneath of it, Israel states, Iran closer to nuclear bomb than ever. Yesterday's headlines. You know, when you look statistically, there have been more victims of war in the 20th century alone than in every other century combined. And yet Jesus says here, quite challenging, but don't be alarmed. Don't, don't be alarmed. These things have to take place. It's a part of what is going to happen on the earth, precipitating the time of his soon return. Verse 11, he says, and there will also be great earthquakes in various places. So Jesus mentions another thing to be looking for. He says earthquakes were as well, you could, I suppose, put in with that natural disasters. Earthquakes and natural disasters. They, they just keep happening with a greater frequency. Again, isn't it very interesting to see how it does seem from my observation, that there becomes less spaces of time between. It seems like as soon as we're hearing about or trying to start recover from one natural disaster, what's happening? All of a sudden the news flashes on and now here's another one over here. And we're, we just found out about this one. We're still trying to clean up from this one and all of a sudden now this disaster happened over here. This tornado over here. This hurricane over here. This earthquake over here. This tsunami. And, and it's like we, we can't even keep up with one after another because why? They're birth pangs. Greater frequency, less spaces of time in between, and greater intensity when they come. The intensity and severity is all the more intense. And Jesus says these natural catastrophes, they're pointing to something. They're just indicators. They're going to happen. But he says, pay attention. They're pointing to something. They're indicating something of the eternal time clock Jesus as well in verse 11 mentions not only earthquakes, but he then secondly mentions their famines, which indicates just a lack or a shortage of food. Again, interesting, beginning in 1970, scientists said at the beginning of 1970 that we were entering the age of famine, back in 1970. Just the natural phenomenon of population increase alone is causing food shortages on our planet. Listen to this. Beginning, from the beginning of history to 1850, beginning of mankind's existence to 1850, one billion people on the earth. From 1850 to 1930, two billion. 1930 to 1960, three billion on the earth. 60 to 75, 
four billion people on the earth. From 1975 to the present, over seven billion people on the planet. Listen, that population increase together with other contributing factors that will cause famine like, guess what, wars, earthquakes, natural disasters, increase of oil prices, making overall production of food costs higher and higher and more difficult, poor stewardship and pollution of man causing less nutritious foods. It's going to contribute to these things. And the reality is this. Listen, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I'm just a realist. There is no solution. There's no solution that's going to stop the global problem of famine and lack of food that will continue to perpetuate, the Bible says, on this planet. When you read the book of Revelation in, in the tribulation period, this is a major, major problem on the earth. Shortage of food and extreme high prices that people can barely afford during that time on the earth. Indeed, we should feed the hungry, yes, but let us put our focus foremost on the eternal soul of mankind. Jesus said in John chapter 6, don't labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. And in that context, Jesus said, for I am the bread of life. And he who partakes of me will never hunger. See, there's a more important hunger. There's a spiritual, eternal hunger. You can stuff your face you can eat to your heart's content. You can hoard all the food when everybody else out there is starving and get your shotgun and, and be one of you. Oh, I'm going to protect my stuff. Listen, but there's a spiritual hunger in the soul of man that Jesus says that is what has to be addressed because people are eternal. They're going to live forever. And people need to know about the bread of life, Jesus, who when you partake of Jesus and let him become a part of your life, he nourishes your soul and allows you to be able to have the assurance of eternal destiny. So important, as Jesus says, these things will happen. He mentions as well in our text here the presence as well and proliferation of pestilences. Again, when you look at the definition of pestilence, it's defined as a contagious or epidemic infectious disease that is virulent and devastating. Pestilences. Again, quickly, think with me, if you would, over the continuous health epidemics that we keep dealing with in our present society. The problems that we're having with epidemics and health things repeatedly threatening not only just third world countries, not anymore, but now even advanced, well-established civilizations. And when these things come and these problems happen with health epidemics and these kind of viruses and diseases. And today, many times, we're finding we don't even have the antidote to stop this stuff anymore. We don't even have, because its severity has increased to where we can't even find the right antidotes and antibiotics to hinder the stuff or put it down. Again, Jesus just tells us that this will increase because it's part of the labor pains upon the earth. And then, almost as if to throw us for a loop, he, he just throws in, at the end of verse 11... And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> fearful sights and great signs from heaven. What, what does that mean? One only knows. I'm sure, maybe, what we saw just a week ago over in Russia may be one indication of that. 
You know, NASA records for us, if you didn't see the news, February 15th, a meteor crashed into Russia's Ural Mountains, 800 miles east of Moscow. Scientists have confirmed, listen, that the meteor that crashed to the Earth was about 55 feet in diameter, was comprised mainly of iron and weighed around 10,000 tons. That's about the size of a bus. Moving, listen, it was moving at 33,000 miles per hour. That's 15 times faster than a rifle bullet is fired. Something the size of a bus <sighs> traveling in. It exploded just a few miles above the Earth's surface, fraying everywhere with the force of multiple atomic bombs. Listen to this interesting insight, which quite interesting to go with it. That meteor which hit, studies show that meteor that hit happened just hours, listen, hours before asteroid 2012 DA-14 measuring the size half a football field made the closest recorded pass of an asteroid to our Earth. Listen to this. Although scientists say the two events weren't linked. Oh, they were linked all right. They were linked in the sense that Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Creator of all, said in the last days there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Now, we look at these things and maybe you're staring at me thinking, thanks for spoiling my lunch. This was the most encouraging... I just, Boy, I just forget lunch plans. Why... Listen, what, what do we do? What does this mean for us? What should we be concerned about? Should we be running around like, you know, the sky is falling and running around as Christians terrified and stressed and worried about the world destabilizing and deteriorating all around us? I, I don't believe so. It's inevitable. It's part of the internal schedule. But I don't believe we should be stressed and terrified. And what I think we should do in light of that is taking into consideration what does that mean in light of what the Lord's told us? Well, I'm a simple guy. Let me be real simple. In light of what Jesus tells us here, look with me at the end of verse 11 and circle with your pencil the last word Jesus says in verse 11 in our study. It's the word heaven. That's the answer right there. That's the answer. That as God's people and those who know Jesus in a relationship Knowing such prophetic things should motivate us about heaven. Because that's reality. This isn't reality. That's reality. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, if you're a Christian, let these things be something that stokes your heavenly perspective for people and for property and how important property and things are and for our plans and what we do with our time and energies and efforts, let it stir us. Our citizenship's in heaven. And this morning, if you are here with us, maybe you're visiting or whatever, or you've been here week after week and you are not truly saved. Listen, you need to get ready for heaven today. Today, there's an urgency. The labor pains are obvious. 
Listen, if you're not ready, Jesus Christ made the opportunity available. We're all sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve hell, but yet Jesus has made access freely available into heaven. He loves us. And because he loves us, he came to this earth, lived the sinless life that we can't for us. And then he substitutionally stepped into our place of punishment and died on the cross for your sins so that his blood could be shed so that your debt of sin can be washed clean. It doesn't matter what you've done this morning. Jesus wants to forgive you and he wants to save you and give you the hope and the assurance of eternal life. So listen, maybe this world is hard. But Jesus says, look, but I'll forgive you and I'll give you peace and take away all your guilt and you can have your name registered in heaven and know that when you die that you're ready to be in eternal life with the Lord prior to when he returns and before he leaves the opportunity to breathe your last breath. Shall we stand and pray together? We'll have our musicians come to close us out. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks into our life, the truth. And Lord, sometimes it is like salt. Lord, it has a, a powerful effect, Lord. It gets our attention. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just be stirred and, and walk away and not be changed. But Lord, may your words stir me and may it stir your people to where we respond to it in a personal and direct way for our life this morning. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.